Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. One, from illegal immigration to trans athletes in sports, the party of quote-unquote empathy has revealed itself to be the party of NIMBY. Two, what's it like to be outnumbered four to one? What's it like to be ganged up on? What's it like to be Jessica Tarlov on the five? And three, a conspiracy that forced Lamar Jackson to throw into triple coverage so that Taylor Swift could endorse Joe Biden. Our lunch break political panel without kicks, Bobby Burak, and the host of Stacy on the Right, Stacy Washington. It is the Will Kane Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on YouTube at Fox News's page on YouTube, always on demand in video at the Will Kane Show on YouTube. Just look up Will Kane Show or search Will Kane Show in your YouTube search function, and you'll be able to find past episodes with The Rock, with Jordan Peterson, with Stephen A. Smith. And this is always available in audio format on demand wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. An incredible conspiracy theory within the house of the Will Kane show that explains the terrible play of the Baltimore Ravens Lamar Jackson deep in the psyop it is a conspiracy that forces Taylor Swift on the United States of America so that she will in turn endorse Joe Biden that's coming up in just a little bit here on the Will Kane show i had a moment of pride last night at roughly 1:30 a.m. I know that work where that can lead your mind, but that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I woke up to growls and a bark and yet a meaner growl and a more foreboding bark. Violet, my fawn-colored Doberman without her ears cut and nothing about her reading violence or threat, was telling someone, back off, this is my house. And I swelled with pride. I mean, to be real, it was my 16-year-old son who needed a lesson this weekend in time management as he had some essay to write. Usually our weekends are covered up in soccer tournaments, soccer games, maybe a formal dance. But this weekend didn't have all of the ingredients of a busy weekend. So there was plenty of opportunities on, say, a Saturday or Sunday afternoon to write your school paper. Instead, waiting till after the NFC Championship game, he stayed up till 1.30. Now, Violet does not have a good history of living up to the reputation of a Doberman. I mean, she'll bark mostly at the mailman as he approaches the door. And it's scary sounding. She'll growl, she'll bark, but should the door open, she'll cover him up in licks and kisses. She is an absolute floozy when it comes to pets. There's nothing better than attention from a stranger. There's nothing better than a new pet. So I'm a little always let down. And she has quite literally let me down on her single and solitary job which is to protect this house. 
I may tell that story at some point in the future here of the Will Cain show. I haven't ever shared that personal story, but Violet failed to protect this house. But last night, at least when it came to my 16-year-old son creeping around the house at 1.30 a.m., I heard it. I, I, I saw it. She was ready. She was ready. And I was filled with pride that she would protect this house. Speaking of protecting this house, why the increased focus suddenly on the border? Story number one. The party of quote-unquote empathy from the issues of illegal immigration to trans athletes in sports has revealed itself to simply be the party of NIMBY. NIMBY, of course, is the acronym for Not In My Backyard. That seems to have finally hit home, literally and figuratively, when it comes to illegal immigration and Democrats. In December, we hit yet another record, 300,000 illegal immigrant encounters. On top of that, 19 individuals who are on the terrorist screening database. Late last week, we saw the letter from former heads of the FBI warning that the number of people flooding through our southern border amounted to an invasion, the type of which no foreign army could accomplish, either through the air or by the sea. But rather by our southern border, we have brought in untold number of single males from across the globe. When I tweeted out that FBI letter, I noticed one of the responses in my mention said, oh, yes, we need to be so concerned about these Latinos bombing Kansas City. Of course, that shows an unprecedented level of ignorance as to what's actually happening in our country. But I also think it reflects the way a lot of people think of illegal immigration. Quite bluntly, they think of their housekeeper. They think of their landscaper. They don't think about the single men coming into this country from Iran. They don't think about the single men coming into this country from China. They don't think about the people coming into this country on the terror watch list, on the terror screening database, and from countries that our national security apparatus has said harbors ideologies of terrorism. And that was quite a letter, although late, but blunt, about an imminent threat to our country that is being facilitated by our southern border. If you ever saw any of the movies written by Taylor Sheridan, he's not just the showrunner for great shows like Yellowstone, but he is the writer, in my estimation, of one of the best movies I've ever seen. That's Hell or High Water, about bank robberies in small town Texas. But he also wrote Sicario, and Sicario's plotline was essentially the United States government classifies the Mexican drug cartels as international terrorists because they facilitate human trafficking that results in the compromised security of the United States. In the movie, it literally led to a bombing at a department store in Kansas City. That's the plot premise of Sicario. And this has all led to an increased focus on illegal immigration. Late last week, we began to see the emergence of a quote-unquote bipartisan immigration bill that would cap the number of illegal encounters daily to 5,000. And once that number was exceeded, then it would grant the president with increased powers to reduce the number of illegal encounters to 3,700 until that falls below some acceptable rate. Of course, it's 
an insane proposition. The president doesn't have executive powers right now to enact the laws of Congress to control our southern border. And that as well led over the weekend to the news development that the United States House of Representatives is drafting impeachment articles against DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. The allegation, not only that he lied to Congress about the security of the southern border, but he fails to uphold his oath of office, which is to execute the laws of Congress. The legislative branch of the United States government makes the laws. The executive branch, Alejandro Mayorkas, under the executive branch, under Joe Biden, executes the laws of Congress. There's some gray area on policy and in essence, prosecutorial discretion, what you have the time and capability to devote in enforcing Congress's laws. But the accusation in these articles of impeachment is that it's a violation of the oath to so blatantly ignore the laws of Congress. But whether or not it's this bipartisan bill or the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas, suddenly everyone, suddenly both parties interested, at least on the surface, of securing our southern border. Now, is this because of, quote unquote, empathy or is this because this issue has finally hit the bullseye target of NIMBY, not in my backyard? We have seen the mayors of Democrat Chicago saying you are impacting the economic capabilities of not just the citizens of Chicago, but in particular, the minorities, the black residents of Chicago negatively with this influx of illegal immigrants. We've seen the streets of New York. I was in New York. I am every weekend. And, you know, I have a friend that's lived in New York for over 20 years. And it's really impossible to explain. I lived in New York for 15 years. The change on the streets of New York. You you will see. And, I, and my friend sends me pictures sometimes because he rides the subway more than I do. I guess I've gotten too big time for the subway. But you will see women with infants strapped onto their back, like in, in a papoose. You'll see kids begging on the subway. You don't see that in America, begging on the subway. And you'll walk through the streets of the Upper West Side. And I'm here to tell you, what you're looking at is not simply a person looking for the latest job. There is a menacing nature to the illegal immigration crisis in New York City. Single men. I'm sure unhappy with their circumstance congregating in the doorways of out of out of business out of business enterprises looking like one small bad decision away from a crime or the compromised life of people here in America it's finally hit the backyard of democrats and it's hitting the election prospects of joe biden in new hampshire not El Paso, but in New Hampshire, you saw 41% of Republican primary voters saying this is their number one issue, number one, illegal immigration, and is becoming the biggest election liability for Joe Biden. And now it has hit his backyard. Why is sincerity important? Why is motivation important? Why does it matter whether or not he's driven this issue out of empathy or he's driven to this issue out of cynic Cynical self-interest, because it tells us what will happen in the future. I got a note this weekend from a friend that I used to work with at ESPN. We were discussing Leah Thomas on Fox and Friends. And Leah Thomas, of course, is the trans swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. And he said, this is such a non-issue. Why do you guys focus on issue, non-issues? 
You're, you're just stoking outrage. He's from the left. And, and, I, and I said, it's not an issue to you. He said, who does Leah Thomas hurt? What's the percentage? Like who's actually negatively affected by Leah Thomas? Which I think is, first of all, a level of ignorance to the issue, whether or not it's the golfer that just won on the NXXT tour, or it's the, uh, the, the high school students in Connecticut who place first and second in the state's track championships. It's happening more and more. It's not simply affecting Riley Gaines. And if you're a father of a daughter out there who has invested her life in athletics, it's certainly affecting your prospects, maybe for a scholarship, maybe just for fulfillment, for living out your life's work. But this is the issue when it comes to so many, so many projections. The party of quote-unquote empathy doesn't have any empathy until it affects them. If my friend had a daughter, or maybe if my friend had a kid going through a trans issue and saw Leah Thomas as an inspiration, when in fact she pulls the kid away from the problems that are actually affecting her depression or her identity. It affects people. It's just not affecting people. You and the southern border has affected people in Texas and in California and in Oklahoma and in increasingly further north for years. But it didn't affect Democrats and it hasn't affected Joe Biden. And that point that they're not now driven out of empathy, but they're driven out of NIMBY suggests that when this election is over, should it be won by Joe Biden, it will go right back, right back after an election year, right back to the historic spike in numbers that we saw through the first three years of his presidency. That's why sincerity matters. Look, for you and me, it's okay. To some extent, it's okay to be NIMBY. We talked about this with Jordan Peterson. You should care about issues closest to home first. You should care about your family, then your neighborhood, then your city, then your state, and then your country. You should care more about your local school board than you do about Ukraine. That is a properly hierarchical morality, but it is not proper if your job is to literally represent the people of the United States. Where did I get this wrong? Always interested. 855-FOX-TALK. 855-369-8255. I am always interested in the exchange of ideas. I have no interest in living in a glass house. I'm interested in where I got this wrong. So I want to bring in one of the hosts of Fox News, The Five, Jessica Tarlov, now here into the hey. Will Kane Show. Hey, Jessica. Good morning. Or I'm really glad. Morning for you. Yeah. <laughs> It's one hour before afternoon for me. I'm really glad to have you on the show. And I'm glad to stick around today for a little bit to talk about what it's like to be Jessica Tarlov. But for now, I want to invite the rebuttal. I want to invite you to tell me where I just got it wrong, that the Democratic Party has been revealed not as a party of empathy, but of NIMBY. Well, I hate to disappoint you, especially on your new show, but I don't have the kind of fearsome rebuttal I might have about the economic news. Um, I do think that it, Republicans, <clears throat> excuse me, have been quite effective, actually, in nationalizing this issue and what began as a performative stunt, or that was the perception of it, in sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard, obviously calling out liberals like this is where you like to hang out and spend your summers, um, has now turned into a crisis for people across uh, Democratic cities in the Northeast and through the Midwest. And you have, you know, people like J.B. Pritzker and Mayor Adams and Kathy Hochul 
talking in very similar terms uh, to people who live much closer to the border. Uh, it is not breaking through, I would say, though, as an electoral issue in the same way on the left as it is on the right. I was in both Iowa and New Hampshire for the caucuses and then for the primary. And could, it was palpable how important it was to Republicans. It is not resonating at that level for Democrats, but it is certainly inching up there as something that is in our frame of mind um, and something that we're concerned about, I think, along the lines of that humanitarian need, but also a little bit of my life is being disrupted in a way that I did not expect. So it's somewhere in the middle, I think, of what you were saying there. Um, and I myself feel that way, native New Yorker. Um, I do still take the subway, um, I guess not big enough to have done that. Or frankly, I, I just like to get there quicker and everyone thinks I'm insane. The traffic is unbearable and that is not a migrant problem. Uh, but I see those women that you're talking about. They're mostly Venezuelan. They are carrying their children around, often walking also with an older child uh, and trying to sell candy, right? They're trying to work. They're trying to be able to provide for their family, which is what all of us want to do as our number one priority, as you called out. And the city and the state and the federal government does not seem to want or be able to help them. And it's a travesty that they were either fed lies of what it would be like or that we are just letting them down at this level. Um, so I do think this is going to be an issue in the general election. It will not be what Republicans hope that it will be. And I feel kind of craven talking about it in these terms, right? Because electoral politics reveals the worst in us, right? Where we say like, well, actually this thing that's super important isn't gonna matter because people are not gonna show up to vote on it. Like why shouldn't immigration matter? And why should we only be talking about abortion or preserving democracy or the economy? But unfortunately we can't hold that many thoughts in our head when we go to vote and we have to pick the one or two top things that matter to us and then go with the party that reflects those priorities. And that's a larger issue with the two party system that we could get into. But, so, um, so Jessica, I've seen you, I've seen you tweet about this, that you think a lot of what Republicans are doing, including by the way, not embracing this new bill that, you know, seems <laughs> to uh, avail the president of new powers, powers that I would suggest he already has, but um seem to avail the new president of new powers. Um, you, you, I've seen you make the point, I believe, on your social media. This is performative. Like Republicans want this to be an issue. They don't want to solve it. They want. And by the way, there are some on the right are going, hey, how performative is what's happening in Texas? How performative is Greg Abbott's new toughness on illegal immigration? You and I would probably come at that from different sides, meaning yeah. I don't want it to just be performative. I want him to be more muscular on this. But mm -hmm. um I, I, I feel like you, you leave open that fed lives about what their life would be like. I, to me, the reason these numbers have spiked over the past three years is because of the rhetoric, in part, the rhetoric that they believe this is an open invitation to them for a better life in America. I, I think that you could make that accusation a lot more effectively a year plus ago. And I think that the Biden administration is feeling the weight of the change in dynamics post COVID, right? Title 42 was this kind of gift that Democrats got from uh, the health agencies and also, I guess, Republicans in the beginning where they could say, well, this isn't how we want it, but because of health issues, all of these Mexicans are being held in Mexico. 
Mexicans and also people from other Central and South American countries. And every time that the courts kept upholding it, there was a bit of a sigh of relief, at least amongst moderate Democrats who were saying this is going to be an absolute disaster, right? When it's lifted, there is going to be a flood of people. And I do think that the rhetoric from the Biden administration has improved over time. They never said, or at least Joe Biden never said, come all of you, you know, open invitation, as many of you as uh, can possibly fit in. But there is a, a subsection of the left that certainly feels that way and will feel that way till the end of time. And and that's just not changing. Well, could, what, I want to press you on this and, and you and I will talk more about kind of you as a person and as an individual in just a moment. But, you know, I can't quite tell where you are, by the way, in this conversation, like when that you think we should be increasing enforcement and shut down the southern border. But yeah. to the extent that there's a section of the left that doesn't think that, why? Just like a lack of belief in nationalism? Well, yes, I think there are different definitions as to, quote, what makes a country. There are different views on what level of immigration is feasible for us and what we can sustain and that we do have job openings. And there are a lot of jobs, and I believe this having grown up in a big uh, city that are filled by people who are undocumented that Americans don't want to do. I also think that both parties, because this is a decade-long problem, right? I understand we're having an explosion at this particular moment, but it's not as if Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump didn't have immigration issues to face. And both parties stall out. We've had the gang of eight. We've had the gang of four. We'll have a gang of six probably coming. And no one ends up fixing it. And that's what we're seeing again with this border bill. And the reason that I tweeted about this being so craven is two-parted. One, you have Republicans like James Lankford, who was on with Marge Brennan, I believe, yesterday on the Sunday shows, um, talking about the fact that this is a bill that maybe doesn't make everybody happy. And I'm guessing from the way that you're talking about it, it certainly doesn't make you happy. Um, but it would bring us in the right direction. And it is being stalled out by the second factor in all this. And that's Donald Trump. And Donald Trump has openly talked about the fact that the economy is improving and that he won't be able to run on it unless it crashes, right? That the stock market uh, blows up and that he can make that argument again, that only he is the one who can fix it and he can restore the kind of post-COVID times. And the fact that Mitch McConnell has discussed the fact that they don't want to undermine the nominee and immigration is his top priority. So he followed that up a couple of days later by tweeting out, you know, this is a weak bill. We can't have this, et cetera. But when the quote party leader and he's the presumptive nominee, and I, I see no reason that he won't be on the general election ballot uh, come November, is saying to a party that has increasingly just fallen in line with him and what he wants, that they're turning down yeah. the prospect of actually getting something done because he commanded them to do so. And I think that that's- I think the problem gross. is, and, and, and we'll, we'll leave this debate here and then move on to um, a deeper conversation. Um, but I think the problem is this idea of getting something done has always been wrapped up in comprehensive. We have to figure out how to both close the Southern border and figure out a pathway to citizenship. Pathway or we have to, to do too much at one time. Yeah, too, too much at one time that we have disagreements about when we should have an agreement. And to some extent, I hear some from you that, no, 
it, this can stand alone, like execute the jobs of the executive branch in enforcing the southern border. Um, I'm going to I'm going to do this, Jessica. Uh, I think we've got we've done this one for we've done it more than you would have ever done it on the five. That's a fair enough statement already. <laughs> this is longer than you would have ever had on the five. And I would always hope to have you back more in the future for um, as much I, as I we can that. disagree. But I want to take a break. I want to take a break because I'm not done with you because I want to talk more about who you are and what it's like to be Jessica Tarlov on The Five. And that's coming up in just a moment here on The Will Cain Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to the Will Cain Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and at the Fox News YouTube page. If you like to listen to the Will Cain Show, go to Spotify, go to Apple, go to Fox News Podcast, hit subscribe. You can catch any of the five episodes every week, whenever you like. You can also watch it on YouTube, Will Cain Show. Search Will Cain Show on YouTube. Now, story number two. She is the host, the co-host of The Five. She is a voice of dissent at Fox News. She is Jessica Tarlov, and she still is hanging out with us here on The Will Cain Show. So, Jessica, I was at the Patriot Awards in November, and I don't know that I've seen you. If I've told you this already, I apologize for the repetition. But I told Dana Perino this the other day. I went to dinner with Dana, and you came up. And we were talking, and um, I said, this lady came up to me at the Patriot Awards, and she said, hey, Will, Will, come here. Would you please tell Jessica Tarlov how much I appreciate her? And then she went on to say, look, I don't agree with Jessica about most things, but I, I think it's important that I hear her. It makes for a better show, and I know it can't be easy, is what this lady had to say. And I said, listen. I know exactly what you're talking about. I feel like I've been in the, in this seat. And so I will absolutely relate to Jessica how much she's appreciated by at least some of the audience at Fox. So what's it like to be Jessica on The Five? Well, first of all, that's very sweet. Um, and I always like hearing that. I very rarely get. Uh, I agree with what you're saying. And I like you, um, even though The Five does have the highest level of Democratic viewership. Um, on the network, which is something that we take a lot of pride in and having created a place where people, no matter their ideology can go and hear something that they like, but also hear something that they don't like. And I think that that's really important, especially in these very polarized um, and frankly, politically dangerous times, right? Where folks are not commingling, they don't date each other anymore. The staff on that are absolutely staggering. Um, and you see this with Gen Z and you've got two little Gen Zers um, but women and men are moving in opposite directions in terms of politics, um, which I think is going to make uh, the, the social scene a lot more difficult. Um, so mm. what's it like? It's a lot of fun. Uh, I have a great time and love it. You know, when you fill in and usually you're sitting next to me in Jesse's seat. And I think we have a great time too. Um, it's an opportunity to, tell millions of people what Democrats are thinking and to play a little bit of translator for it. I, I feel like with politics, and I'm sure folks think this about me in terms of understanding issues that are important to Republicans, maybe as per our border discussion, that it's like a game of telephone, right? That you hear a little piece of truth and then it keeps getting translated by somebody else and somebody else and somebody else. And then you have a completely wrong perception, right, of what the other side is actually thinking. So to have that opportunity 
to be proverbially face to face with two and a half to three million people um, on a daily basis, depending on the ratings, always watching five, we love our ratings, um, and translate exactly what it is that the Democratic Party is thinking, what the Biden administration is thinking, and where someone like me, I think a pretty moderate Democrat, at least in the scheme of the modern day uh, Democratic Party, feels about it and might see something that's wrong. And I think that folks... Mm appreciate that about me or i hear that a lot that there is at least a willingness to call out something that you just think it's just not yeah, i know fly, right like bad policy get a lot of hate or a too. bad person yeah i mean I, I know in social media you get a lot of hate because i see it when i fill in <laughs> to your point i mean I'm, yeah. i mean but look everyone does but you are in an environment where the majority of people watching disagree with what you have to say does it ever bother you jessica like do you ever like scroll through your mentions and just kind of and again i I'll, we'll talk more about it in a minute but i do have i think a unique position within fox of understanding your situation um but does it ever get to you like do you ever scroll through your mentions just like man i mean i'm just surrounded by hate yeah totally um it's can be very upsetting i used to let the comments about my physical appearance really got to me. Um, I used to do Barney's show a lot when I was starting out on Fox and his set is very exposed and you're kind of sitting to the side and I used to wear sleeveless dresses. And there was a woman who, I love that her bio was, you know, like proud Christian mom of four veterans, well, you know, one of those, <laughs> those, and it was just about how fat my arms were and that I should never wear sleeveless dresses. And I don't anymore. Uh, that's just, Really? Something I don't want to go back to. Yeah, it's the thing that you're putting yourself out there and that you're preparing. And that's something that I take really seriously. Whether you agree with me or not, no one has ever accused me of not being prepared to show up and talk. And then for someone to just be hitting you on a physical trade and one, you know, you've got a wife, you know how we feel self-conscious about our arms <laughs> and things like that, especially as we age. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I'd rather give up the dresses and just get things that I that I'm less likely to get horrible commentary about. Um, so, yeah, it does bother me and hurts my feelings. I luckily sit next to Judge Pirro, who does not give a flying you know what about what anything one says about her. So sometimes I'll show her something and she's like, are you looking at that? Who cares? You're here. They're there. You know, and that always helps. And Greg and Jesse are the same. Um, and Dana, I don't, I just don't think anyone ever says anything bad about Dana. But uh, <laughs> well, maybe Trump people. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, hurtful. You, you know, you can't change who you are. I'm really sorry to hear that. I really am. And oh, and no, um, right. no, I mean, I'm I'm not just saying that in faux empathy. Like I know, I know what you're talking about. Like, and we'll come back to the dynamics at the table in just a moment on the five. But you, you uh. Look, I spent five years at CNN being the fly in the ointment, you know, and, and, yeah. you know, it, look, it's a liberal network. And, and I mean, it's, honestly, I was there from like 2010 to 2015. So it was kind of a different network then, to be honest, than it was after Trump. Yeah, it changed pretty dramatically. 
But but even then, you know, I still was a fly in the ointment. I just wasn't the devil, <laughs> you know. Like then then conservatives became the devil. But then I went to ESPN, and it was kind of the same thing. You know, I'm on a show, you know, and and to be real, I'm on first take with Stephen A. Smith, and race is a constant topic, and race is a constant topic in the country, and I'm the one going, no, I don't think that's racist, or let's stop for a moment before we just uh, um, brand everything as racist. And my mentions are just full of, you know, I'm Calvin Candy from. Uh, from uh, Django Unchained or whatever, whatever the latest racist meme is. But to be real, I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I hate painting with a broad brush. I'm a dude. And I'm not going to lie to you and say it never got to me. The quantity of it can overwhelm you, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, but, but I know what you just described. That's really sucks, you know, to, to, like you said, yes, you are a, a woman. And, and there, there are a lot of, everybody has physical insecurities, but I think it's in particularly heightened for a woman. I just think that sucks. I'm, re, I'm really sorry that's something that is a part of your life. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I do think it's different um, across the genders. And I think, I mean, we could do a whole other show, not that I'm trying to turn your show into pregnancy hour, but about what it's like. <laughs> to go through those nine and a half to 10 months on air on where air. your body yeah. changes are so visible to everybody and, you know, trying to figure out like, how can I hide this? I'm not ready to talk about this. Um, you know, it's like most women want to be in oversized clothes sitting on a couch anyway. And you just kind of have to figure out how to make it cute uh, yeah. to put on roughly 30, 35 pounds. Um, and then magically be able to lose it by the time that you're coming back to work. You know, when my doctor always says it takes you nine months to put it on the expectation that after 12 weeks or whatever your maternity leave is, that you should look exactly like you did before isn't fair, but that's the standard that we're held to. And you're doing it now, by the way, you were expecting in April. So that's um, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. And by the way, let me follow up on that in that you um, talked about romance a minute ago and like men and women and left and right. So th tell me if I have it right. Your, your romance is a story of COVID and your next door neighbor. Like that sounds like a, out of a yeah. rom-com. Is that kind of what, what, what happens? You, you, you hooked up with, I don't mean hooked up in the, you know, like, you know what I mean well, phrase. I mean, but like I mean, you and your so neighbors started here. a romance. Yeah. <laughs> you and your neighbors started a romance when everybody was locked down in New York. Yeah, so uh, I had lived with my long-term boyfriend um, in our apartment here in New York City, in Union Square, and we split up towards the end of 2019. And I started dating again, like February 2020, let's say, and got into the elevator coming home from a date with someone that obviously did not pan out with um, at about midnight. And there was a guy in the elevator who I had never seen before and it turned out I lived in 5A and he had moved into 5B about a month before, but he worked in finance and market hours. So we've never run into each other because he's out by 6 a.m. And I don't see 6 a.m. even having a small child. That's not for me. And uh, he was like, do you want to have a drink? And I said, like, no, it's the middle of the night. And he did this whole like, if I asked you for a cup of sugar, you know, like it was pretty well played. Um, so we ended up hanging out <laughs> and he actually put a note under my door, like old school. We didn't exchange numbers and ended up giving me his number. And our first date was the week before COVID. And then we were just kind of stuck there. So we got married. <laughs> and <that's it. laughs> you know, um, we don't need to dive into the psychologist. You know, 
I remember I was dating my wife and um, let's see, how long was it into my relationship with my wife? Like within the first year, my dad died. I was really young when my dad died. I know you oh. lost your dad fa- fairly recently. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, but my dad died and there's something about like, I don't know if we call COVID a tragedy. I don't know what we call it, but like there's something about like emotionally, everything getting emotionally heightened that makes you more open to other emotions. Do you know what I mean? Like, when yeah. my dad died, I was more open to a long-term commitment with my wife, who I love. That's not the point, but it's like everything yeah. was felt deeply, and and it just kind of put rocket boosters on everything. And I bet I could guess, like, there's a lot of, like, logistical things about a lockdown that could make your neighbor attractive. But, I mean, like, everything <laughs> yeah. in the environment, everything in the environment probably puts rocket boosters under a relationship. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I lucked out that he's... At least I think, or I've heard he's objectively good looking too, but he certainly looked better because, you know, what was I going to do, right? You're not, you're not going on the apps and risking exposure to all these different people. But I totally think that that's correct um, when you're going through something tragic and whatever you think of COVID and the lockdowns and the way that we lived, there was a lot of tragedy to it. And my dad was, he got cancer originally in 2006. He has a, had a 9-11 cancer and it recurred over the pandemic. And, you know, a few months into our relationship, I needed to move back to Tribeca where I grew up so that I could walk to his apartment to see him because you, I wasn't going to risk going in an Uber or getting on the subway or anything like that. And I met a man who interestingly had also lost his father a few years before. And that was a big part of what we would talk about. Like, what is this going to yeah. be like? What is it like also dealing with the parent that's left behind, you know? And I mean, your mom, I'm sure is forever changed by your father's death. Yeah. I don't, I don't actually know if they were together or what <laughs> what was going on, but it's yeah, no, they were. Uh, her yeah. tragedy is part of your story now. And so we picked up and moved out of our side-by-side apartments into one apartment uh, closer to my family um, within four months of dating and had spent a month of that out in Los Angeles because my sister was heavily pregnant and hadn't been able to see her family almost the entirety of the pregnancy because of my dad's cancer and then COVID. So there were all of these levels of the circle of life going on around us. And then I got pregnant and to be carrying new life as you say goodbye to life that was so important to you was one of the most incredible and devastating and just I don't think I've ever felt as deeply even when my daughter was born as I did watching my dad die like holding my belly you know yeah 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 I really appreciate you sharing that. That's um, and I can hear I can hear it in your voice. Oh, um, yeah, I also so have a gravelly re- voice, which people on the internet don't like. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Another one of your comments, also in your yeah. comment section. Hey, um, yeah, I know you described yourself as a moderate liberal. Re- liberal. I, I I think I read this about your sister, who's an actress. Um, that she did she she go to the Little Red Schoolhouse? Did you go to the Me Little too. Red Schoolhouse? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, and I want you to disavow me of this, but I don't think I'm wrong. I do believe it's connected to the Communist Party USA. It's like, I do believe it has a Marx, (laughs) yeah, like a Marxist. So, I mean, part of me wants to be like, 
like part of me wants to be like Jess, your dad, by the way, who we we're just talking about, was a political strategist, I believe, as well, um, uh, and an attorney was with Chief Justice Warren Burger, and um, um, so you've been in left politics most of your life, and you describe yourself as a moderate Democrat. But then the little red schoolhouse thing, and I'm like, part of me wants to ask like, why are you so left? The other part is, well, you describe yourself as moderate. But help me make sense of, I, like, I don't want to debate your leftism. I want to know where it comes from. Yeah, so I think that the way that Little Red is left-leaning is more like call your teachers by their first names, treat everybody with respect, a lot of golden rule stuff, emphasis earlier on than a lot of other private schools even on diversity and inclusion, not in the Claudine Gay <laughs> sense of DEI, but just making sure that like my class, which was unheard of, you know, I finished Little Red in 1998, was over 50% um, of people on financial aid and over 50% diverse. That's not something that you would see. I went then went uptown to the Upper East Side. I went to a school called Dalton, which has played catch up in the DEI game, I think, in an incredibly disingenuous way. Uh, compared to a school that kind of has roots in the progressive movements. So I wouldn't say that I was going to like a little communist school, but obviously, you know, it's a little red schoolhouse um, and it has roots. But you were, kind of but not, I'm not, not making an accusation, but you were like, no, literally. it's not the like, curriculum. It's, it's... I just mean, it's not the same thing that you would be oh. getting if you were growing up in China. Um, or in okay. just just before. some, some tweaks instead of, instead of CCP, it's CPUSA. <laughs> But the reason that I describe myself as moderate is my if you benchmark my beliefs against where certain figures in the Democratic Party, and I'm sure to you, they all seem like super lefties. But I have very little in common with AOC, for instance, especially on an issue like the border. Right. And in the 2020 primary, I was a Joe Biden person from the beginning, not only because I thought that he was the one who could win and put together that coalition of voters that we needed, but because he said things like, no, we can't just give undocumented people access to all of our hospitals. We can't have an open border. Originally, he said mm. that, you know, we couldn't pay back everyone's student loan debt. Um, and it was from pressure from more liberal members of the party that brought him to the place that he is, which is not full erasure of the debt, but certainly um, moving towards relief there. So that's why just more establishment kind of built in the Hillary mold, which is probably more upsetting yeah. to you than uh, any other figure so, that I could bring well, up. Just, but, uh, so in the Jessica Tarloff, in the Jessica Tarloff story, Dalton won and Little Red Schoolhouse lost. You just became establishment, <laughs> elite left, instead of populist communist left. <laughs> I can't, you know, it's, uh, I, I went and did my PhD at the London School of Economics. Like, I am a globalist. I know. And that's part of it's what you fancy. raise. And I think that's also to connect it to the original conversation. I think that's part of why the five works for so many people, that everyone is just unabashedly who they are, right? And bringing their experiences yeah. to the table and not making apologies for it. Like, I think there are a lot of problems with higher education. I don't think that it is the menace that many people see it as. Um, and I gained a lot of benefit from spending mm. years in the ivory tower um, maybe I don't understand certain <laughs> things as a result, but I get other things, um, and I, I see value in that. 
It's one of my favorite lines. I think I'm going to have to clip this. I got a lot of benefit from spending years in the ivory tower. <laughs> yeah, um, it's great. As would, be, as would be the case. As would be the case. Now, I'm messing with you, Jessica. I want to end this on going back to the five. You brought it up again. So, you're right. Every time I've been there, look, I like you. I'm, I want the audience to know. I really like you. I enjoy <laughs> I enjoy our conversations like off air as much as any, you know, I debate you pretty hard. I think you know that. Like I'll look at you and, yeah. and I'll go specifically at a point you made, but then, then we'll talk about our favorite shows on Netflix or Amazon prime. And you have a lot yeah. of opinions on shows like that. Um, and you seem to have, and I want, I think this is true, but you can tell me and tell the audience your relationship with the others also seems really good. Like, like you said, you, you and the judge yuck it up during commercials. You know, if I'm sitting in Jesse's seat, I'm next to you to your left and ju the judge is to your right. And you're often turning and talking to the judge and hanging out during commercial breaks. But you and Jesse seem to have a really fun relationship, too, where he'll mess with you on air. And then it's it's like this is how it was for me and Stephen A. Smith. Like we went at it. But when it's over, it's over. And we're back. You know, we're people. And it's. And I think that I don't know about your relationship with Greg and Dana as much. Just literally, I don't know. I don't see as much. Um, that's not. I'm not giving subtext. I literally don't know. So you can tell us. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems, but it seems like everybody's relationship is really good on the five. Yeah, um, I think that's definitely true. I, Greg and Dana have been doing this together for 13 years, um, so they're, you know, even beyond work wife and work husband level right the uh the amount that they have gone through as colleagues and friends and you're completely right i don't think the show works unless people see a genuine connection within the folks there and it's easy for me um with piero because her grandson is around the same age as my daughter cleo so we go to that a lot, sharing pictures. And mm. um, she got Cleo like the cutest vest for her second birthday um, during the pandemic when no one could get baby formula. Of course, Judge Piero, I don't want to say like she's a mobster or anything like that, but somehow she had plenty of formula and she made sure that <laughs> I got what I needed uh, for my daughter. And um, I have a great relationship with Greg and Dana, you know, chat with Dana every day. She lives uptown. I live downtown. But Greg and I are basically neighbors. It's about an eight minute walk. Oh, and I'll go over oh. and just like hang out with Gus with his dog. Uh, oh, awesome. I didn't know that. Spend time. Oh. Yeah. So we're we're basically just like on the other sides of Canal Street. Um, so everyone has been really embracing of me. And I think. What people understand, certainly who do this job, but I think most of the viewers as well, that we want to make sure that you hear us and get a point of view and learn something of value, but that you're also entertained. And we are doing this from an air conditioned studio in Midtown Manhattan, and it doesn't have to be the end of the world all the time. Right. And that's something that I think yeah. Jesse does so well that he doesn't take himself too seriously. And he has a way of making an issue that has a great level of importance, but just feel comfortable for you. Yeah. And that certainly comes across. And we've worked together a long time. Like we used to have a segment on Hannity called Jesse versus Jesse, where we would debate and it was two on one because Sean does have his preferences, um, <laughs> even though we're friends. <laughs> and then we take the subway home together. You know, it was just oh, like nothing yeah. happened. Um, that's before he became definitely too big for a car service. He, a hundred percent. I mean, is that's that's really bad now. for his brand. That's bad for his brand. He doesn't. Well, he's, he's not in a New Jersey rider. now, so he's got a. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can't you can't do. I guess he could go and get on uh, 
get on New Jersey Transit, but it's a little late after eight o'clock. So yes, um, everyone genuinely gets along. And I think that allows the viewers to have more fond feelings towards someone without their politics, like your friend in Nashville. And then I love also seeing the dynamic with Harold Ford Jr., who does the liberal seat half the week, right? He's ideologically a different kind of Democrat than I am even. Um, And he has great relationships with all of them. And it's super fun to watch. Well, this has been fun. I really, this is probably the most you and I have gotten to talk on a personal level right here in front of everybody yeah. else. And I've really enjoyed it. And, <laughs> and I appreciate you um, also providing a perspective today of what I might have gotten wrong. And I hope to do it again in the future. Yeah. Thanks so much, Jessica. We'll yeah. be watching you on the Thank five. Thank you for having me. All right. Bye. All right. Take, take care. There is a conspiracy afoot that Lamar Jackson played terrible in order to put the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl so that Taylor Swift would be seen more and on a bigger platform so that she would then endorse Joe Biden. The connection between Lamar Jackson and Joe Biden coming up on The Will Cain Show. It's the Will Kane Show, streaming live at foxnews.com and on the Fox News YouTube page, always on demand. Will Kane Show on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. Is there a conspiracy that has changed the Super Bowl so that Taylor Swift could swing an election for Joe Biden? Story number three. There's a lot of different personalities here on the Will Kane Show. Behind the scenes, we've talked about it. Young James, bit of an establishmentarian, establishment Republican. Two-a-days. Sports. Patrick is threatening to become renamed Conspiracy Patrick, which I appreciate. You got to have all walks. You got to have all voices. And I think you need to have someone in your life that says, let me tell you what's really going on here. And there's a new theory afoot, not just forwarded by Conspiracy Patrick, but echoed by the likes of Vivek Ramaswamy, that Taylor Swift is a psyop that has encouraged the Kansas City Chiefs into the Super Bowl so that she, at a bigger platform, may endorse Joe Biden. Vivek Ramaswamy tweeted the following, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month, and I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially, culturally propped up couple this fall. Just some wild speculation over here. Let's see how it ages over the next eight months. The... Will Cain Show text chain is currently exploding over the fact that I have labeled people conspiracy or establishment. All I do is tell the truth. But when it comes to this particular conspiracy, man, y'all are insane. This is crazy. So let me get this straight. Let me see if I understand. This is how it works. Taylor Swift, who already has a massive platform in great global reach, according to a new poll by Newsweek, 18% of voters would be more likely or significantly more likely to vote for a political candidate based off her endorsement. Now, that also is insane. One in five Americans are waiting for Taylor Swift's stamp of approval on a president. By the way, one third of voters under the age of 35. That is insane. However, it's only matched in Sandy by the idea that the NFL would prop up the Kansas City Chiefs and that we are to ignore Patrick Mahomes' greatness. And yes, this is a down year for the Kansas City Chiefs. Not quite as good, not quite as dominant as they have been in the past. And yet still there is the greatest quarterback since Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes. We're supposed to ignore the fact that Lamar Jackson threw into triple coverage. We're supposed to say this was all part of a big setup, a psyop, 
to usher in Kansas City Chiefs to the Super Bowl so that Taylor Swift has, I don't know, an unnecessarily bigger platform so that she could then in turn, after the Super Bowl, endorse Joe Biden, swinging the one in five necessary to win an election. Man, if you have to squint that hard, this is why I love Conspiracy Patrick being around. Sometimes I need someone to squint through the BS. Sometimes you have to say, if you have to squint that hard, you are blind. Let's bring in our political panel at lunch break today. He is a columnist at OutKick. He's a friend of the show. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Bobby Burak. At Burak Bobby is his Twitter handle. His name is Bobby Burak. And she is the host of SiriusXM Patriots, Stacy on the Right, every night from 9 Eastern Time to midnight. She's also on X, Stacy on the Right. And she's a former U.S. Air Force veteran. It's Stacy Washington. I'm so glad to have you both on the show. Bobby, um, <laughs> Bobby. Talk to me about Conspiracy Patrick. Talk to me about Vivek Ramaswamy. Talk to me about this ridiculousness of Taylor Swift being put in a position to endorse, with greater effect, I guess, Joe Biden. So there's a bigger problem going around here. So ever since your Cowboys lost now two weeks ago, you sound like uh-huh. a bitter sports fan. You you would have to read talking about Duffy for trolling. Now you're just dismissing this growing conspiracy theory. I don't think you're recovering with that Cowboys loss very well, Will. I mean, just listening to you, you seem like that bitter fan whose mm-hmm. team keeps losing and doesn't want any other mm-hmm. sports fan to have fun, Mm-mm. including conspiracy Patrick. Let, let, let me explain to you uh, what a bitter fan sounds like, okay? Because yeah. I have not yeah. yet showed you bitter fan. A bitter fan sounds like this. Man, Josh Allen sure has had a couple of bad years in the playoffs. He keeps choking about the divisional round. And Lamar Jackson, for all his MVPs and greatness, sure hasn't taken his team all the way. And he sure plays bad when it comes down to it at the last moment. So why then is there so much focus on Dak Prescott? A, a real bitter fan would go, Dak Prescott sure gets a lot of bad attention while Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen get passes. That, Bobby, is what it sounds like to be a bitter fan. This is just, I mean, Stacey, this is, I don't know what kind of sports fan you are, Stacey. I don't know what kind of Taylor Swift fan you might be. I don't think you're a fan of Joe Biden, but come on with this conspiracy. Well, I'm just going to jump in here and say this is a competing rivalry for me because I was raised as a Dallas Cowboys fan because I was born in Texas and my dad loves the Dallas Cowboys. Now, I am a Kansas City Chiefs fan because I live in Missouri and we lost our Rams to, as you know, L.A. and people burned their jerseys and then we immediately defaulted to Kansas City. So I'm a part of the Red Nation. I love Kansas City Chiefs and I love Kansas City, but I live in the suburbs of St. Louis. So there's my full disclosure before I go ahead and say it's a pretty wild conspiracy theory unless you think about the (laughs) fact that during her heiress tour, Taylor Swift actually caused a seismic earthquake in California, one of her concerts, the fans were jumping up and down, and it was the second time it happened. Once was at a Super Bowl, and the other time was at a Taylor Swift concert, where the ground actually rocked, and it rocked the Richter scale. So this is a woman who not only can cause earthquakes, this is a story, you can find it yourself (laughs) online. She literally rocks the planet when she has concerts. So it doesn't surprise me that she can sway that many votes. Now, is it coordinated or is it just a series of events? I mean, you know, I'm just somebody's mom on the radio. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, I, 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 I think I'm picking up what you're both putting down. All right, we're not quite buying into the wild speculation of Vivek. But here's now on a serious note. 
I think you're working on something that's going to come out soon on OutKick, Bobby. Here's my sense. Whatever the current state of play is, it won't be the state of play over the next eight months. Meaning, it won't simply be old Joe Biden against, in, in, you know, um, indicted Donald Trump. Something's going to change. I don't know. I don't know if it's a consequential world war or, you know, whatever we call wars now, military action. I don't know what it will be. I don't know if it's Iran. I don't know if it'll be media censorship like we saw in 2020. I think you can bank on that. I actually think you can absolutely bank on that in some way. But I don't even think we see the state of play yet. And I'm sitting here wondering, like, I, I wonder what will be the big push for censorship, you know, in 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 the next yeah. eight months, because there will be a big push. Yeah. So right now, Morning Consult in the betting odds, which I cite often on Stacey's show, they both have Donald Trump as the largest predicted favorite over Biden since December of 2022, when they really started to track these odds and polls. So Donald Trump is, by those measures, the favorite to win the general election. And I've seen a lot of people, particularly on the right, say, well, he's going to get it. I would say not so fast because of that reason that I think other things will be at play. And the column that I'm writing right now, and hopefully it'll be out tomorrow, is about what people have called the censorship industrial complex, meaning, look, more people than ever are going to turn to social media for information regarding this election, right? The news networks are all down. Social media podcasts are all up. More people are tuning to big tech, which has a unique ability to sway an election. Now, sort of memory hold from the news cycle was a filing by the House Judiciary Committee in November about how government agencies have been in contact with Facebook, Twitter, Google to take down posts that they thought were were inaccurate, whether it be memes, reports, or opinions. And according to Representative Jim Jordan, those filings disproportionately affected Republicans. Now, that's huge when you have an outlet like Facebook that reaches some 200 million users working on behalf of government agencies to manipulate what users can and cannot see. Yeah, you know, I think a good illustration, Stacey, is you guys saw the post over the weekend of Joe Biden wearing a hard hat and he put it on backwards, right? It was it was goofy. I mean, he wore it backwards. He wore it wrong. But then Snopes, who's self-styled as like one of these misinformation fact checkers, came out, Stacey, and was like, oh, no, no, actually, he's wearing it right. I think they got so much pushback that they put out some like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, gobbledygook. It was really hard to parse what they said, but they admitted, okay, in the end, you're right. He's wearing it backwards. How important is that is beside the point. But the, the real point is, I just think, I just have this feeling. I don't, like, we're soon, and it's got to start soon, go deep into the world of media, media manipulation. Yeah, and I, I think you're already seeing that. That was an example. And they're going to push the envelope right up to you're actually crazy. You're not seeing what your eyes are seeing. Like the the characterizations that they've made from the White House press briefing room about the way he trips all the time whenever he's out in public, he's tripping over things. And they characterize it as him being cute and everyone falls. And maybe you just didn't see him do it that much. Trump, Trump, more, Trump, Trump tripped more when he was president, you know, that kind of thing. And so I think that, that it's going to be in your face and subtle at the same time. And it's going to be it's going to be almost par for the course. We're already used to it. So the idea here is you have to find your trusted media source. But for so many Americans, mm -hmm. they're just not even tuned into it right now. They're not going to start tuning in 
until about 90 days before the election. And since we have so much early voting, they'll be voting based on whatever they see right then. And then they're going to be done with it. And just like last time when the story was the laptop, they would have been swayed in another direction, but they got misinformation, they voted, and then it was too late. I think that's the playbook here. And of course, there's all these rumors about Michelle Obama replacing him, Biden, you know, at, at the convention, which again, will be a yeah. huge push. People will pay attention, vote, and then plug back out again. So the the laptop, you know, what's interesting is that the laptop was the most egregious, but only, it was actually one of like a dozen things that were obvious misinformation where the public was manipulated in that election year. And I think this, uh, I think those dominoes begin to fall. I don't know what the biggest one will be. Um, Stacey, I would love to get your perspective on this. Um, so obviously in the news, there's been a lot of talk of DEI. And then at, at the same time, there's been this talk of airplanes. By the way, you're a former Air Force pilot. Um, no, now, not a pilot. I don't see, oh, <laughs> I was in I'm the sorry, Air Force, but in not the a Air pilot. Force. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to leave your qualifications. I'm going to stand strong on the same level of qualifications, maybe a little. Oh uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, with the air, there's these these airplane issues and people are attempting to connect the airplane issues to DEI. Right. Which, by the way, I think they have a huge burden of proof that hasn't been met on like why plane doors are blowing off and, and its connection to DEI. However, it's also led to conversations which, in, in essence, are about affirmative action. Um, and like Charlie Kirk from Turning Point said a week ago that if he gets on a plane and he sees a black pilot, I don't know his exact words and I hope I don't mischaracterize it, but it was something like he's more, more nervous, right? And then the internet exploded and said, this is the most blatant racist thing that someone could say. Now, to me, I'm like, I, I don't think he's saying he doesn't trust a black pilot because he is black. He is saying that because of an um, institution of affirmative action that necessarily by its very de definition changes the qualification levels based upon race, he would have greater uh, concerns for someone who was playing by a different qualification level. You could use anything. Um, you could use any beneficiary of affirmative action in the same place. It wasn't... Um, particular to, he, he did use the example of black, but I think the greater point wasn't about having anything to do with black. It had to do with beneficiaries of affirmative action. But everyone decided this was blatantly racist. I'm curious, Stacy, and for those listening, Stacy's black, in addition to being former oh, of the, uh, Air Force veteran. If it's your first time knowing that, yeah, I am black. I, I recently yeah. told my husband he's okay with it. Also, I told the kids. Um, you know what I, I, I love about this is that we get to like burn the internet down over this instead of the 300,000 illegal aliens who crossed into the country in uh, December. Yeah. You know, our we have so many greater problems than what Charlie Kirk said. And I actually, I, first off, I like Charlie Kirk, um, but I don't live or die by his comments. And you accurately described what he said. He actually made this statement on his show. He was just sitting there and he said, you know, when mm -hmm. I step on the plane and the first thing I thought was, Charlie, do you see the pilot when you step on the plane? Because when I get on, first of all, I'm six feet, two inches tall. So I duck and get in once I've made it in really bashing my forehead. Oh, yeah, I, it's ridiculous. The plane door is so low. This is a whole nother issue we have to discuss. Leg room on planes. I, I, I consider <laughs> myself to be a person of size, but not this way. This way. I'm tall. I need more leg room on the flight. Southwest, please hit a girl up with an extra three inches in the leg room. But that being said, <laughs> well, his comment was a reflection of the frustration with the idea that people aren't being hired on merit. So I can tell you, I've, I've actually walked the flight line on FOD walks. I've seen F-16s take off and land. I did all of the sortie data for that. That was my job in the Air Force. And I know what crew chiefs do. And I've seen the inside 
not the classified parts, but the semi-classified parts of the inside of an F-16 and F-15, the E, the, I, this, this was my job. And so when I would go in there and we would talk, the crew chiefs always expressed to me that this was their tail number. And so they were responsible for it. So there's a level of responsibility and ownership within mechanics who mm -hmm. work on planes that is much different than, say, a guy who works on your car. That's not his car he's working on. He doesn't take ownership of it. But with a flight line representative and, and a crew chief, they take ownership of that. And so when you see planes, like pieces falling off planes or the guy in the UK, he's sitting and he's looking out the window and he notices four bolts are missing. The guy comes out and mm -hmm. tries to screw the bolts on with a regular screwdriver. This is in the UK. The flight was coming into New York City. So they actually moved all of the passengers off of that flight and put them on another plane. So the issues that you're mentioning, you can go online and find uh, that Boeing's junkyard there's a lot of stories written about how the age of the flood, the fleet of aircraft that we're all using on a daily basis, a billion flights a year, it, the, the, the planes are too old and there is an issue yeah. of maintenance. So I don't think that's connected to DEI, as you mentioned, Will. But I, I, I go back to the natural inclination that we all have, that we trust our airline industry. And this is a black mark on it when you see Charlie Kirk making that statement. It's not about race. He, he's not a racist. This, this, this isn't about race. It's about competency. The insult for black yeah. people is that when you see someone black because of affirmative action, you assume they're there because of something other than their intellect. And with 52 million black Americans running around America doing everything under the sun, Oprah Winfrey swans around among us. She's pretty competent. She's pretty successful. Mm -hmm. This means that this is an incorrect assumption but it's the left that's putting this on us. And they're the ones who run these DEI programs. Will, 65% of those in DEI positions across the country are white women. And you know they're not Republicans. You know they're not. They're, right. these, are, these are leftists. And they're saying to you and me that they cannot just hire Black people because they're competent. They have to hire them because they've been told to, because they wouldn't otherwise do it. So the biggest statement against that of racism ever is that. So I, I wish we could change the conversation is what I'm saying. Bravo. That's, that's, that's really well said. By the way, your point about yeah. the age of the planes, anyone that flies regularly, and I fly all too regularly, um, knows that's true. These planes are old. You can feel it, especially, by the way, uh, you mentioned one airline in particular who needs to update their planes. Um, and by the way, <laughs> Stacy, you're 6'2". You just set a record, yes. you and Jessica together. Jessica's 5'11". You're 6'2". That's so not I a Will Kane show record. That's got to be a. That's got to be like a political show. Forget political. Ah, uh, there's some. There's some ESPN WNBA shows that might have beaten it. But average well, height for women guest in one episode. I'm feeling yeah. really good about this episode of the Will Kane show. I met her in person back on a Megyn Kelly audience panel, and she she was in the audience panel, and so was I. And she's, I, we were talking and she said, oh, well, I'm a Democrat. And I, I was like, this is at least 10 years ago, Well, I was like, you are? Because I, I was feeling so simpatico with her. We're both tall. We're both at Fox News. We both have on our little Fox News dresses. And so she was like, yeah, I am. And we're going to be talking about some tough issues tonight. And so we get on the panel. And of course, she's representing that side. And I'm over here way on the yeah. right next to Attila the Hun. And it was so cool. But she's, she's fantastic in that she is a real yeah. person. She's not just her political views. So, you know, tall chicks unite. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Bobby, um, Stacy brought up, like, um, how, what, what DEI does to undercut the idea of merit. And, you know, um, look, you and I are not just big sports fans. Like, I'm a Dallas Mavericks fan. I'm, I'm Dallas everything. And, um, and Mark Cuban, 
the he still runs basketball operations, former owner governor of the Dallas Mavericks, has just taken this on as his issue, right? And I think he tweeted that people who believe DEI is about quotas are morons. I think that's what he said, literally. And then this video shows up of his president of the Dallas Mavericks, I think her last name's Marshall, it's Cynthia Marshall, of her saying this. I'm going to play this for you, Bobby, and then we'll react. I know the business case for diversity. and You have to have a diverse group of people around the table uh, if you really want to be as successful as you can be. And so, so we took that on. So we laid out that vision, laid out a set of values, and then I had one-on-one with all the employees and then made some leadership changes. And wow. so now we have almost 50% women in leadership and 47% people of color. And so wow. diversity, and- diversity matters. It matters. So that was on NPR's How I Built This. Um, you know, she does actually give an actual number, Bobby, 50%. You know, and and I don't know why Mark is playing this semantic game or deluding himself it has clearly evolved into a game of quotas. Yeah, so let's just use media, since we're all in media. Media executives have bonuses and incentives tied in their contracts, usually to meet diversity quotas. So it is about a number for them. And a lot of those executives are white people, which in a lot of ways, DEI is a way for white executives to protect themselves because when the mob yes. comes for them and it comes for everybody, they can say, no, 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 you can't cancel me for my past comments, i.e. Mark Cuban. Look at all the people of color I've elevated. So I think we have to start there. Who's actually benefiting from DEI? A lot of times it is those liberal white executives. It's not always black people or people of color. Um, I did a column about affirmative action in July And there's a real argument that affirmative action on the Ivy League is harming black students because it's accepting students who don't have the capabilities, per se, to graduate from Harvard, right? There's that study of when you accept so many black students who don't qualify for Harvard, they end up not graduating where they would if they went to a college that fit their skill level. And you bring up sports. Just like the Charlie Kirk issue, when you tell a nation over and over again that skin color is going to determine their level of success and that black people are getting jobs because of it, which is what they're telling us, of course, you're going to see somebody and think, well, are they just there for DEI or affirmative action? And that's undermining of black people because they don't need it, right? Let's talk about football coaches. There was a big issue two weeks ago about the Chargers interviewing a black head coach when they already wanted Jim Harbaugh, a white guy. And people said, well, they're just using that black coach, I believe it was David Shaw, as a box check. Yes, because there's Mm -hmm. rules in place where you have to check that box, which is undermining to capable black coaches who are turned into pawns because of rules in place. We bring up airlines. The United CEO, whatever his name is, like Jason Kirby, he he also implemented a policy where you have to interview so many women and pilots of color. So a lot of them are being interviewed just to check off that box. Um, it's absolutely, you're referencing in the NFL, the Rooney rule. And you know, the yeah. funny thing is like, I, I think a lot of these things come from a place I used to have debates about the Rooney Rule on ESPN. I think it actually, what you have to often, not always, but often grant your opponent is that 
they often come from a place of good intentions and the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it's like the Rooney Rule is designed to say, okay, social circles are what they are, recognizing human nature. And so we need to expand your social circles. If you're always hiring white coaches because you know white people in your industry, you need to know and interview more black people and that will open up opportunities to hire more. And in theory, it all sounds great. And then it turns into a box-checking enterprise that you just talked about. And in the end, the bottom line is for human interaction, we've never, ever been able to arrive at a better place than simply judging people as individuals according to their merit. Every other attempt has been a massive failure that reverts us back to the mean of tribal racism. And I just don't think you can create a rule that gets you away from, hey, how about we just all look at each other as people? Well, there's that Gallup poll that you referenced, Will, when you were filling in in primetime. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Didn't 75% of Americans believe that racism was not a day-to-day issue? And then once Barack Obama became president, that pendulum swung the other way. I mean, I'm sure you remember that study you referenced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do I think, remember that. I've definitely seen those those polls you're talking about where, like, right. I can't remember what the terminology is, but racial harmony was at an all-time high or racial um, angst was at an all-time low before mm-hmm. Barack Obama. Yeah, yeah and I think and, that and shows, the, Stacey. Oh, go ahead. Well, I just, I, the, that was the saddest part about his presidency because he ran on this expansive platform of hope and change with this visual imagery that made people think that we were going to be crossing the Red Sea, you know, on dry land, and he was going to be the miracle worker who did it. But if you looked at his rhetoric leading up to his election, he was very divisive, very racially uh, insensitive in that he thinks race is the most important thing and very racially insensitive to his own family, the white members of his family, the way he talked about them. And so he implemented that same negativity as president and he focused on it so much. And it was a deflection tactic away from his failures because he wasn't a good CEO in chief of this country. He didn't have a good background that commended itself to him being the president. And so, you know, he was a failure in so many areas, public policy, foreign policy, uh, especially the economy. And contrast that with people who are good at it. We've had good presidents in those arenas and he was terrible. And so all we did was talk about some dude, uh, the, the guy on PBS getting arrested outside his house, which it was a total mistake on the part of those police officers, but that had to be a capital Harvard case professor. that was broadcast. Yeah, it, all over the the, um, the the ethos, every every bit of our, our culture, we were talking about this guy getting arrested. How many white people have been mistakenly arrested outside of their vacation house or some other thing? It happens to everyone. And so, yeah, Bobby's mm. point is well made, but you know, well, I think the the bigger issue here, I keep going back to what we choose to talk about This is not a year, 2024, in which anyone who's right-leaning or Republican can get sucked into discussing DEI instead of discussing the issues that Americans consistently poll as their number one issue. It's the economy. It is foreign policy Mm -hmm. in the Middle East and Ukraine. And it is the southern border. And anytime people are off message there, they need to go back to their comms 101. I don't care what the person asks you, you're going to one of those three issues in your answer, especially if you're on ABC and NBC, which is a mistake on the behalf of Nikki Haley's campaign. She says she cares about the issues that Americans care about, but she's constantly talking about being bullied as a kid. Um, You know, who wasn't bullied as a kid? I bet you I was bullied more than she was being this tall at 12 years old. I bet you I have the record for being bullied. The public comment section started in my world as a 12 year old. People just saying whatever they want to me because they think, she looks twelve, but she's six two, so she must be an adult. I can tell. I I, I could write a book Stacey, on the things people which, have said which, to me. Oh my gosh! 
What, real quick, one of the mistakes I think people on the right often make is they they deny the you, you get into a place of denying the existence of racism, which is absurd. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a matter of the it's a matter of the prevalence of racism. But I'm curious, right. just as were you did you, in your life have you received more quote unquote negativity because of the color of your skin or because of your height? Height, definitely. <laughs> now let's face it, really? I've been called the N word in public a few times, right? But how many times has someone asked me as a grown woman with kids with me that, did, did you play basketball? And so my response is usually, no, I didn't. I ran track. But did you wrestle? Because wrestlers are usually short. Because the person asking me, the more likely it is that they're asking <laughs> me that is the shorter they are. And so I ask them and they always seem perplexed. And then they'll say, well, why did you ask me that? I'm like, because you're short. And you're asking me about playing basketball, which obviously I, I never did that. I never played I, I, I want to talk about something else. Like, can we please talk about mm. something else besides basketball? But you're right. The, the the prevalence of people saying stupid things is never going away. People are going to keep doing that. Right. The question is, what are we going right. to talk about? Like, what are we going to choose to drive our conversation towards? And I, I'm so tired. Anybody who's a Republican who's talking about being bullied or being brown or or anything else besides those three issues, I'm tuned out. Maybe maybe I'll listen. Well, those those three issues. One thing I find interesting, I just want to interject here. Look, I I do know both of you guys pretty well. Um, (laughs) You both have made the point on separate occasions that I think, and I don't know if I agree with it, you both seem to think the right needs to move away from the culture war in order to win this election. Is that where both of you stand on this? Because I think that's the point. No, I I disagree. I don't don't think I've made that point. I disagree with you a little bit. I mean, it's not that you can't discuss it. My prism is not yeah. always win elections. My prism is win the culture. I think yeah. politics is downstream from culture, as famously said by Andrew Breitbart. And I think if you don't fight culture, you don't. There's no point in winning elections. Yeah, um, I would agree I'm a mom that. of three young adults, so I'll I'll just come right out here mm-hmm. and say that the way that we raise them to into adulthood to be free thinking, free willing conservatives who lean libertarian is that we talked about culture far more than we talked about politics. So they've grown up in the backseat of our minivan listening to me do interviews like this right after school. And I would be on with Larry Elder and they're like, who's Larry Elder? And I pull it up on my phone and show them and we just had a great conversation. And then they would ask me questions, not about the political topics, but about the reason why I said this or that in the interview. So our conversations were always cultural and they probably always will be. And I think that's how you win people over. You understand how life works and you explain that. Explain how life works and then explain how that intersects right. with the tool of politics. So I agree. But I, I'm, this election, I'm a little bit more heavy handed with staying on message. Yeah, ahead, I think Bobby. Dr. Phil put it in great perspective a few months ago when he said politics last terms cultures last generations. And I think with stuff, whether it be race or the trans issue or social media, I think that stuff is going to expand well beyond just 2024 and 2028. But I am with you. I do think for voters, there are focus more on the economy, the border probably than issues like DEI and maybe some other culture war topics. Because, look, I live in a real small town, as both of you know. Those people, those blue collar truckers and farmers, they aren't really aware of a lot of this culture war banner. They're mostly worried about gas prices and groceries. Right. 
Yeah. Well, okay. So Stacey's going to be heavy handed with immigration and the economy yeah. and foreign policy this year. And we're going to make a little room for Taylor Swift, even if we have to do it just in the context to say it, it's I, burden of proof on you, Vivek. And I think Vivek's going to be coming up soon here on the Will Payne <laughs> Show. Burden of proof on you, Vivek. Burden of proof on you, conspiracy theory, Patrick. Why is Taylor Swift, why are the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl? to make sure Joe Biden is president. Uh, Bobby Burak at OutKick. Go check him out. Um, he's got a new column on this media manipulation coming up this week. And Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right. It starts at 9 o'clock Eastern time tonight on Sirius XM Patriot. This has been awesome. Thank you both so much. Well, thanks for having me on. <laughs> I appreciate it, guys. You bet. We'll do it again. We'll do it again with both of you guys. Take care. All right. That's going to do it for me today. Coming up tomorrow, right here on The Will Cain Show, Barstool Sports founder Dave Portnoy. You don't want to miss that episode. 12 Eastern Time on YouTube, Fox News page. Search The Will Cain Show on YouTube. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. I'll see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcast and Amazon Prime members. You can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.